tackling gender bias at work. I'm Annie Rogaski. So earlier this year, in the first episode of the year, I posted an episode with Stephanie Lampkin and her male ally, Dan Malmer. Dan and I actually had a pretty long conversation. I edited it down for Stephanie's episode so that I could center on Stephanie rather than Dan. But I thought Dan had some pretty interesting ideas about allyship, or as he likes to call it, co-conspiratorship. And I wanted to share these ideas. So this episode is kind of a continuation of my conversation with Dan. It includes parts of the conversation that I edited out of Stephanie's episode. But I think these are some interesting concepts and important concepts to share. So I hope you enjoy it. Before we get into the episode, a quick commercial from another podcaster. Hey, I'm Melanie from Mindspace Over Coffee. The best conversations often happen over coffee. In this podcast, we dig deep to uncover helpful insights for living life better. Each week, I invite inspiring people with genuine stories, in-depth knowledge, and firsthand experience to discuss topics like fear, motivation, and adaptability, but in a way that's easy to follow and understand, like chatting with a friend at your favorite cafe. You can find me on iTunes, Twitter, and Facebook, or wherever you get your podcasts. Join me and my guests over coffee. This is Annie Rogaski, and it's my pleasure today to sit with Dan Malmer. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. It's great to have you. Dan made a distinction between allyship and co-conspiratorship. Here's what he had to say about that. So we, how do you distinguish being an ally versus being a co-conspirator? Is there a more active role as a co-conspirator? It's a great question. The term ally seems very nice. Okay. And, um, <laughs> right? And I, I've been thinking about, you know, what it means to be nice. And I, I think, frankly, being nice is kind of at odds with the work that I think needs to be done in terms of creating equality, both for, for everyone, for, for all genders, uh, all races, all religions, um, all levels of ability. And I, I think that one of the things that stands in the way of our making progress is that People want to be, being nice is seen as virtue. Mm -hmm. And in the U.S., in a, lot, in a lot of places in the U.S., there's really a premium placed on being nice to other people. And uh, I think that being nice is fine, but I, I think that it's preventing us from worrying about uh, upsetting people mm -hmm. who maybe should be upset um, about uh, unequal treatment, unfair treatment, mm -hmm. um, things like that. Mm -hmm. So I guess, you know, I, I think that the way that I see it anyway, I think that the the work that needs to be done is more revolutionary. And I think that allyship doesn't quite reach the level of, of the, the actual hard work that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Dan, who is a white male software engineer, shares a bit about how he came to be aware of the gender inequality in tech in Silicon Valley. I was, I would say, dormant for many, many years, and um, I, I've spent the last 20 years or so in Silicon Valley, and I was able to observe that white men were overrepresented in technology, but didn't know why or what to do about it. Mm -hmm. And so part of 
Part of the problem for me was that I didn't have a language or a frame, framework for understanding the problem. It turns out that there were frameworks and languages for understanding it. I just wasn't aware of them. You know, there's very little that's really new in terms of the way that we talk about diversity and whatnot. If you look at, uh, you can go back and read Bell Hooks from the 80s, and she's talking about things that people are talking about today. Or if you go back and look at uh, James Baldwin in the 60s, he's talking about a lot of things that we're talking about today. And uh, the term microaggressions uh, is something that most people are only fairly recently aware of. But that term came from a Harvard psychologist in the early 1970s, oh, really? for example. Yeah, huh. I just found that out recently. Yeah. I didn't know, you know what the origin of that was. So people have been thinking about this for longer than I've been alive. Mm -hmm. It's just I didn't know. Dan raised the concept of centering where we are focusing our attention in questions of diversity and equality. We explore that a little bit here. I loved your discussion of being centered or mm -hmm. off-centered. And I wonder, from your perspective, and, and uh, I'm not asking you to speak on behalf of all white mm -hmm. men, because mm -hmm. I know you can't do that, but is there, is there value to celebrating these actions as a way of encouraging more? Or do you think it has the opposite effect of just saying, oh, well, that's enough? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, yes, there is. So I don't know about celebrating, but I think that part of the reason I got involved in diversity, inclusion, and equity is that one of my talents is identifying talent. So I've hired hundreds of people over the years, and people would ask me, how do you do it? How do I replicate this? Mm -hmm. And I didn't know. And I really didn't know because there were certain questions I would ask people and one person would, would ace the question and I wouldn't hire them and someone else would bungle it and I would hire them. And I was aware of that. I knew that, that there was, a, there was a, uh, an inconsistency. Yeah. So I knew that I was getting more information from the interaction than simply how well they did on the question, but I didn't know what it was. And so in order to figure it out, I started learning about cognitive psychology the psychology of decision making, like how we, and one of my, a great book on the topic is Jonah Lehrer's How We Decide. And it's, we, we don't decide how we believe we decide. We believe that we go down this list and we're very rational and whatnot. The reality is that we make our decision subconsciously and then create a narrative for why we made that decision. Right. Right. This is how we decide. And so once I understood that, I realized that there were, I was making a lot of decisions for reasons that I, I were different from what I thought. And this has staggering implications when it comes to um, hiring, especially when it comes to hiring people who don't look like the prototype for what you think for a certain role. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways we make decisions is we look to what other people are doing. And so one of the reasons that I spend energy advocating for um, people who are underrepresented is that it models the behavior for other people, mm -hmm. right? So uh, if you want to help, you, you know, I hate attention. I, I grew up, you know, I don't want to be in the spotlight. Um, I don't want fanfare or anything like that. But in spite of that, I believe that you have to do this publicly so that other people will see. Mm -hmm. We see this also in online discussions. Um, over the past 
decade, we've seen a lot of uh, racism and abuse, misogyny in online discussions and whatnot. Yeah. And the norm is for people to ignore it. Private individuals and the platforms like Facebook, Twitter, even LinkedIn. I see a lot of abuse even on LinkedIn. I believe that we have to establish new norms. There's a story recently about a woman who was escorted out of a Starbucks by police because she was going on a uh, racist tirade, for example. So in the real world, if you see someone engaging in sexism or racism, they're asked to leave. Mm -hmm. And they're confronted usually by someone. Someone speaks up and stands up. That isn't as much the way that we behave online. We, we tend more to ignore it, I believe, um, on the online space. So that's another place where I think we have to establish new norms. Yeah, yeah. It feels like the discussion in social media has moved really quickly in a lot of different directions, and yeah. particularly with the Me Too mm -hmm. recent stories in 2017. Mm -hmm. um, it, it feels like we're all trying to figure out, well, is this the right place to talk about it? Is this how we should be talking about it? Mm -hmm. um, I'm glad we're talking about it. Yeah. Um, but I agree with you that there, there aren't a lot of rules on social media of really how to conduct yourself. Yeah. Um, and so that will be important for us to, to figure out. Yeah. I asked Dan about organizations that people could check out on their co-conspiratorship path. Here's his response. One of the organizations that I've been working with lately is a group called Racists Anonymous, which was founded by a man named Ron Buford. And what that is, it's a weekly group. It's modeled on a 12-step program. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with dealing with feelings of bias due to any external uh, appearance, mm -hmm. for example. And it's a very diverse group of people, some black, some white, some Asian, some Latino, who come together and, and talk about the topic hmm. um, of race. I, from my perspective, one of the biggest problems we have is that, you know, we, 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 we tend to spend, we spend a lot of our time at work or with family, mm -hmm. and that means that often white people are spending time with white people. Um, if you're African-American, you're often spending time with other African-Americans. I, I had a meeting not too long ago with the daughter of a friend of mine who is African-American, and we were talking about different experiences that we had. We were talking about um, her experiences being black in America, and I was sharing my experiences being white in America, and we were talking about encounters with police mm -hmm. and what's normal, Yeah. right? And she has an idea of what's normal for her based on her experiences, but she has no way of knowing what's normal for me because yeah. she hasn't experienced my experiences. And so we talked about that, and I said, well, I get pulled over by the police once a decade. And when I do, it's because I did something wrong. Mm -hmm. And every time it happens, they check my license, they give me a warning, and they say, thank you very much, have a nice day. And that's it. And it's very different from her experience um, in dealing with police. And that's usually the case when I talk with someone who's African-American. And she said, okay, let me ask you a question. When's the last time you got bad service at a restaurant. And I thought about it, and I said, well, that's hard for me to define, but if you mean 
when's the last time the service was so bad that I considered not giving a tip? Mm -hmm. It was probably 10 years ago. She literally almost fell out of her chair. And she goes, what? That's, she said, I was just at a restaurant last week. Our food was served. We still didn't have our silverware. And half a dozen of the staff were sitting there folding napkins, wouldn't bring us silverware. Wow. And she said, that happens all the time to me. Yeah, so we have, we're living in this world where people don't know, if you're African-American, I mean, you certainly, you certainly get glimpses of what it's like to be white, right? Mm -hmm. Because um, a lot of the media and whatnot is centered on, on white people. And uh, so a lot of entertainment and movies and whatnot um, are based on white culture. And if you're African-American, you have to understand white culture and whatnot. But that's different from living life as a white person. And if, you're, and if you're white, you have even less insight into what it's like to be black in our country. Okay. And so I, I, from my perspective, what I believe is that one of the big inhibitors to, uh, uh, to us working together to solve these problems is that we don't talk about these things, right? We don't have, we don't have places where we can get together and discuss them. Yeah. And that's true, for, that's true for gender as well, mm -hmm. right? Um, there's a lot of... Um, just for example, there are studies that show that as a, and this is, this is all the more reason that, that white men, I, and my, my belief is that white men need to speak up more, is that there are studies that show that if you're a woman or if you're an underrepresented minority in the workplace, you are more likely to suffer negative consequences for speaking up about injustices that you see. If you're a white male and you speak up, you don't suffer consequences, for, negative consequences for that. Yeah. Right? So there are disincentives for people discussing these types of things in the workplace. Mm -hmm. So, and, and that's true, I think, for gender as well as for race or religion or anything else. Yeah, I really uh, think that finding ways to have safe conversations, mm -hmm. like, uh, it, to me, it's, it's being in an environment where we all understand we're going to talk about some difficult things. Yep. And we're open to having those conversations. And if something that we say offends someone else, it's okay to speak up and talk about why it offends someone else. Like yeah. to be able to have those kinds of conversations, I agree with you, is, is huge and critical. Um, but I, I do think it comes down to creating the space that makes that okay. Yeah. The one of so now we're getting into the idea of fragility, mm -hmm. right? And um, one of the things that makes it really hard is uh, defensiveness, right? Right. Usually, not exclusively, but usually on the part of, uh, you know, speaking as a white male, I would say that based on my observations, uh, it's usually exhibited by white males, but um, it can be exhibited by, by anyone. Every, everyone is sensitive to criticism. Nobody likes to be criticized and whatnot. And so defensiveness can always um, come into play. And people are afraid of saying the wrong thing. They're afraid of being judged. They're afraid of saying something racist um, or that will be perceived as being racist. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the, the, it's, it's challenging. It's very challenging having these, uh, these conversations. So I want to thank Dan for his thoughts. This, this is a very thought-provoking conversation for me. I hope it was for you as well. Dan issued a challenge in Stephanie's episode, 
And I'd like to come back to that here. So how are you being a co-conspirator to an underrepresented group? Dan's challenge at the end of Stephanie's episode was to follow people on Twitter from underrepresented groups. So I'll just reissue that challenge. I think it's really important and it's so easy to do. I did this last year and I know I've been exposed to many ideas, opinions, and experiences that I hadn't been exposed to before. I think it's given me a better understanding of how other groups feel and where my privilege kicks in. It's definitely broadened my worldview and it's such an easy thing to do. There's really no excuse not to. It's kind of the bare minimum of being a co-conspirator or an ally. So if you haven't already done this, please start this week. And if you have any reactions to the experience that you'd like to share, you know how to get a hold of me, DM me on at Unraveling Pink, or send a comment on unravelingpink.com contact. Together, we can unravel the pink bandana.